Well, the book of Hebrews is not particularly easy to outline. Uh, generally speaking, it does not contain clearly defined sections with easy to identify transitions in thought. Rather, rather than being a, a bullet-pointed argument, it more resembles a, a free-flowing sermon in which the author is demonstrating the supremacy of Jesus Christ over every contender. The prophets, the angels, Moses, the Old Covenant priests, the Old Covenant sacrifices, even the Old Covenant itself. Jesus is supreme. And the author is punctuating his argument with intermittent warnings, five of them throughout the book of Hebrews. Warnings against falling away from Christ and exhortations to persevere in our faith to the very end. So because of this, because of this free-flowing structure and these warnings that are placed at various spots throughout the book, the author is not afraid to introduce a subject, then leave it for a time while he deals with another topic, and then to resurrect it again, pick it back up, and deal with it some more. That's exactly what he did in Hebrews chapter 5 with the topic of Melchizedek where he introduced in Hebrews 5 the idea of Jesus as the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he left off the discussion for a chapter and a half. While he scolded the church for their immaturity and their sluggishness, and he warned them against falling away, and he exhorted them to persevere, and he encouraged them about the better things that await those who patiently trust in the promise of God. But then in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1, he picked back up the argument again. Went right back to Melchizedek as if he had never left off. And in chapter 7, we found this beautiful argument for the supremacy of Jesus Christ as our forever high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So we shouldn't be surprised when we come to Hebrews chapter 8 and we find him doing exactly the same thing. Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 through 6 is is like a passage without a sermon. What I mean is it begins with a summary of what we covered over the last two weeks in Hebrews chapter 7. We know that. He clues us in by saying, now the main point of what has been said is this. Okay, That's a clue that he's getting ready to summarize what we have been preaching on for the last couple of weeks. So there's no need to retread that ground. Well, the author then introduces a subject that he's going to deal with extensively in Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10. The contrast between the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle. We'll cover that topic in weeks to come, so we don't need to go there today. Finally, in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6, he introduces the subject that then will be covered over the remainder of the chapter, which is the new covenant. A topic which, by the way, he's already touched on. A few times earlier in Hebrews chapter 7. Like in Hebrews 7.12 when he mentioned that a change in priesthood necessitates a change in law or change in covenant. And in Hebrews 7.19 when he says that the law of the old covenant made nothing perfect. Or in Hebrews 7.22 when he said that Jesus now has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So what I'd like to do this morning is to breeze through as quick as we can verses 1 through 6 of chapter 8 and spend the majority of our time this morning in the second half dealing with the issue of the new covenant. So very quickly, 
Hebrews 8 begins like this. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. The author's discussion of Jesus as the high priest of the new covenant now rests upon a very solid foundation laid for us in Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 7. That's why he says he is such a high priest. We know what he means by such a high priest now. He means that he's the perfect mediator who has offered up himself as the perfect sacrifice for sin, who lives forever in order to perfectly intercede for his people, and who therefore achieves for his people the perfect salvation. He is such a high priest. The author then describes him as one who has now taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty in heavens, which calls to mind his description of Jesus at the very beginning in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 13. And so what he's doing is he's taking Jesus as the high priest, and he's linking it with Jesus as the king, the reigning and exalted incarnate Son of God, and he's linking them together and saying they're all one. This glorious Son of God who is priest and king. And in verse 2, he establishes the realm of Jesus' high priestly ministry. It's not in the earthly sanctuary, it's in the heavenly sanctuary. The heavenly, the heavenly tabernacle which was erected by God, not by man. And that, as I said earlier, introduces a topic that we will cover when we get to Hebrews chapter 9 next week. The general idea, though, is this, just so you have some idea of what he's talking about. The true tabernacle or temple or throne room in heaven is the reality of which the earthly tabernacle and temple of the old covenant, there in the wilderness, tabernacle or there in Jerusalem, the temple, was only a copy or a replica or a shadow. In other words, the the elements of the earthly tabernacle correspond to heavenly realities, which are infinitely more real than their earthly counterparts. The Ark of the Covenant, for instance, sat in the Holy of Holies of the earthly temple, on which rested the mercy seat, above which sat enthroned the Shekinah glory of God. That's where the glory of the Lord sat when God would meet with His people. Well, that corresponds to the throne room in the heavenly temple where the Lord actually sits. The same throne, by the way, in the same temple where Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne and the train of His robe filled the temple. That's what we're talking about. The heavenly throne room. The heavenly holy of holies and the heavenly sanctuary. The golden altar in the earthly tabernacle on which the blood of the sacrifice was offered corresponds to the true altar in the heavenly tabernacle. The same altar where the seraphim flew and got the burning coal and used it to touch and to purify Isaiah's lips in Isaiah chapter 6. And the earthly priests who ministered in the old covenant in the earthly tabernacle correspond to Jesus, the great high priest who ministers in the heavenly tabernacle. So we'll delve into that in Hebrews chapter 9. The author then establishes what form this ministry of Jesus takes. He says in verse 3, Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, 
so that it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Which is simply saying that the core of priestly ministry is the offering of sacrifice. The core of the the ministry of the old covenant priest was those repeated sacrifices upon the earthly altar. Right? Sinful priests offering worthless blood upon a copied altar. As such, these earthly sacrifices could never take away sin, a topic to be discussed later at length in Hebrews 10. But Jesus, the sinless high priest of the new covenant, has offered up himself once for all upon the cross, has sprinkled his blood upon the true altar in heaven, and has atoned for the sins of his people finally and forevermore. So we're still working with this contrast between the new and the old, the better and the inferior. Verse 4, now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Quotation from Exodus chapter 25 and verse 40, where God warned Moses, okay, I'm showing you a vision of the heavenly reality, the heavenly tabernacle. I want you to go now and make the earthly tabernacle exactly like what you have seen, according to the pattern. Again, setting up this stark contrast between the copy and the reality, the superior and the inferior, the eternal and the temporal. The old covenant tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly tabernacle and therefore inferior and temporary. The old covenant priests who served in the earthly tabernacle were temporary and inferior, as were the old covenant sacrifices that they offered. But his point is that Jesus isn't like them. He is of a different kind. In fact, he doesn't even belong to the old covenant. He wouldn't have been qualified to serve as a priest in the Old Covenant tabernacle under the Old Covenant because he wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He wasn't of the family of Aaron. Rather, here's what he's doing. He's lifting up Jesus and he's saying, rather, Jesus is the high priest of a new covenant, a better covenant, a superior covenant, and he ministers in the true and heavenly and superior tabernacle which is in heaven. Therefore, his ministry is eternal. And effectual. Which leads us to the conclusion of chapter 8 and verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. By as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. Which has been enacted on better promises. So the author has now established Jesus is the better high priest. He has obtained a better priestly ministry, a more excellent ministry in the more excellent, true, and heavenly tabernacle, all right? So before now, before he continues on into that subject, Jesus' superior ministry in the superior tabernacle, Hebrews 9, he's going to take a little bit and he's going to establish the foundation of Jesus' priesthood. You remember, Jesus is a priesthood not like them, not like the Levites, not like the sons of Aaron. He isn't a priest of the old covenant. He is the priest of a new covenant, a superior covenant. And so what we're doing this morning is we are unpacking what is so new and superior about the new covenant. That's what we find in verses 7 to 13. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 7. 
where the author lays out the need for a new covenant. He says this, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. That logic ought to sound familiar to you because we ran into the exact same flow of thought last week in Hebrews 7, 11. Remember where the author argued that the very fact that God promised a new priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, while the former priesthood of Levi was still ongoing, was proof positive that the Levitical priesthood was ineffective. If it had been effective, if it had been able to make the people of God perfect and reconcile them to God, there would have been no occasion to promise a second one. Make sense? He's using the same logic here in Hebrews 8, 7. If the first covenant, the old covenant at Sinai, had been faultless, God would have had no occasion to promise a second one. A new covenant that he specifically says is not like the old covenant that he made with the fathers at Sinai. But God did promise a new covenant while the old covenant was still in effect, which again is undeniable evidence that the reconciliation offered in the old covenant was temporary, ineffective, and necessitated a new covenant that would bring forth a new and everlasting reconciliation between God and his people. Now, he's going to reach back into the Old Testament in the same way that he did with the new priesthood. And he reached back into Psalm 110 and verse 4. Now he's going to reach back into the Old Testament and prove his point from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. He could have chosen any number of texts promising a new covenant, but he chose this one because it is the most explicit of any of the new covenant promises found in the Old Covenant. And he quotes from that entire section here in Hebrews chapter 8. It's just a straight out quote from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. And that chapter of Jeremiah comes in a certain context, and it's important that you know it. The promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah came at the lowest point in Israelite history. The curses of the covenant that had been threatened in the days of Moses before they had even entered the land had now come upon them. Jerusalem had fallen. The people were being carried away into exile in Babylon. The covenant was broken. Within a decade, the Babylonians would return and would destroy the city and would burn the temple to the ground and carry away its treasures into Babylon. And it was in the midst of this heart In the midst of this despair that God sent a promise to his old covenant people Israel, they're, they're on their way to exile and he sends a promise through the word of Jeremiah and the promises of a new covenant, not like the old one which you broke. That's the context in which we get these words that are quoted for us in Hebrews chapter 8. The new covenant would accomplish God's redemptive design. Finally and forevermore, what had been promised in the old covenant would be fulfilled in the new. I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will dwell in your midst. That's the shadow that had been promised in the old that is fulfilled now in the new. And that's exactly the core of this new covenant promise that we find in Jeremiah 31. The purpose of God, namely the redemption and reconciliation of sinners will be achieved in this new covenant, and we're going to learn how. 
But first, we need to ask a question. What was wrong with the Old Covenant? What was the flaw of the Old Covenant? Because we need to know what the flaw was in order that we can see how the New Covenant corrects it and how the New Covenant is better than the Old. What was it about the covenant that God made with his people, at, at, uh, people Israel at Mount Sinai, that made it weak and ineffective in reconciling sinners to himself? I think the answer is clear in this text, both from the author's introduction to the quote and from the words that he quotes from Jeremiah 31 itself. Look at the way the author introduces, verse 8, beginning. For finding fault with them, not it, them. Finding fault with them, he says. The them with whom God finds fault are the people of Israel who broke the covenant, which then is made clear in the words of the Lord through Jeremiah quoted in Hebrews. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. So it's clear, both the author of Hebrews and the Lord himself lays the blame for the breaking of the covenant squarely at the feet of the people, the men and women of Israel who broke it by their sin and their wickedness. In other words, catch this, the problem was not with God, nor was the problem with God's covenant. The problem was with the sin of man. The old covenant simply did not deal adequately and finally with the problem of man's sin. The old covenant was a covenant of law. It was a do this and you will live. Do this and you'll be blessed. Don't do this and you'll be cursed. It was a covenant of law like the original covenant of creation. Promising blessing for obedience, cursing for disobedience. If Israel obeyed the terms of the covenant, if they kept the law, They would experience all of the abundant, overflowing blessings that God had promised them. Chief among which was this. I will dwell in your midst, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. God would provide for all of their needs. He would protect them from all of their enemies. But, if Israel broke covenant, God promised that he would spew them out of the land, he would hand them over to their enemies, and he would bring raining down upon them curse after curse after curse. You can read about the blessings promised and the curses threatened in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. But notice this. It wasn't as if God had made a mistake. There's nothing wrong with the law. There was nothing wrong with the old covenant It's not as if the old covenant was unjust. God says, I redeemed you out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt and I'm bringing you into a land that will have houses that you did not build and fields that you did not plant. All of this is grace. Now, obey. And he had every right to expect that. He had every right to demand absolute obedience from his redeemed people. And it's not as if the Old Covenant was devoid of grace. There was all sorts of grace 
infused in this covenant of law. That's why there's a system of sacrifice. If God hadn't been gracious, there would have been no system of sacrifice by which to atone for sin. They would have sinned and God would just kill them. But he, he instituted a way to at least temporarily, as it pointed ahead to Christ, temporarily, typologically, to atone for sin so that they could continue to be his people. Grace, even in the midst of law. He treated them with such abundant patience. By the time he finally handed them over to the Babylonians, it had been nearly a thousand years of almost endless idolatry and immorality and godlessness and wickedness. And he had sent them judge after judge to rescue them from their, from their sin-induced bondage. And he had sent to them prophet after prophet to call them back to repentance and to the true worship of the true and living God. But in spite of all of this grace, Israel persevered in wickedness until finally God's patience ran out, so to speak. But not entirely. Because even after he had handed them over, he sent his prophet after them to give them a promise. The promise of a new covenant that would achieve what the old covenant could not. So let us establish the flaw of the first covenant in order that we may rightly appreciate the glory of the second covenant. The problem was not, it was not with the law. Paul himself wrote in Romans 7 verses 11 and 12 that the problem is not with the law of God, the problem is with the sin of man. He says this, sin, i.e. my sin, taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me the law didn't deceive me the commandment didn't deceive me my sin seized the opportunity through the commandment and deceived deceived me and through it killed me and then he comes to this conclusion so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good the old covenant was holy and righteous and good it was men who were unholy and unrighteous and wicked And the deficiency of the Old Covenant was that it could not, did not deal decisively and finally with the problem of sin. Neither with the penalty of sin, nor with the power of sin. Or to put it another way, the Old Covenant did not deal with the heart of man's problem, which is the problem of man's heart. But the New Covenant does. And that's precisely how it's different from the old. The new covenant deals decisively, finally, with the problem of sin by taking away sin's penalty through the atoning death of the Son of God and by breaking sin's power through the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. That's how the new new covenant is different from the old covenant. And those two differences are spelled out for us in verses 10 through 12. The differences, once again, the breaking of sin's power through the indwelling Spirit of God and the removal of sin's penalty through the atoning death of the Son of God. These are the better promises that he spoke of in Hebrews 8, 6. These two Crucial differences are precisely what makes the new covenant so vastly, infinitely superior 
to the old. So let's walk through them and then we'll close. The first better promise of the new covenant is of transformation through the Spirit's sin-breaking power. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now remember, the problem of the old covenant was not with the covenant itself, but rather with the people who did not keep it. The old covenant did not deal with the problem of man's heart, man's evil, rebellious nature. It imposed laws and commandments upon sinful and rebellious people, but it offered no power to keep those commandments. So it gave commandments, righteous commandments, holy commandments, but it offered no power to keep those commandments. The old covenant was based upon external restraint. Commandments written on tablets of stone and given to men with hearts of stone. Which is precisely why it failed. It is futile, listen to me, It is futile to tell sinners who do not love God and do not love their neighbor that they must love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and they must love their neighbor as themselves unless you supply them with the power to love. Moses knew this from the very beginning, which is why he told the Israelites You read through Deuteronomy, if you have a twisted sense of humor like I do, you actually end up kind of laughing because it's been 40 years in the desert. He's brought them to the very edge of the promised land. They can see over the river Jordan into the land, and he is talking to them one last time. All of Deuteronomy is just one enormous sermon before he's getting ready to head off and he'll die and Joshua will take them into the land. And he reminds them of the terms of the covenant. He reminds them of the law, and then he tells them, but you're going to break it. You're going to fail. Thanks for the pep talk, coach. And here's why you're going to fail. Deuteronomy 29.4. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. In fact, Moses goes on and he tells them that they're going to break the covenant and they will be sent away into exile. But after that, God is going to give a new covenant. He's going to bring a time of restoration, a gracious working of God, which would address the problem of man's sin. What he hadn't done under the old covenant, giving them new hearts, new eyes, new ears, he's going to do under the new covenant. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. And what's the result of this circumcision of the heart going to be? Do you see it? You're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. He's going to do a work in you that's going to cause you to love Him. And really, isn't the keeping of the law summarized in those two commands? Love God, love neighbor. He's going to give you a heart which will produce that kind of love, and you're going to live. That's going to be the glory of the new covenant. He's going to do for you what he did not do in the old covenant. Verse 8, 
And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. Moses recognized the deficiency of the old covenant and he saw the glory of the new covenant that would come. So did Ezekiel a thousand years later. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. The Lord says through Ezekiel, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Do you see the difference in the new and the old? That's exactly, by the way, what happens when someone is brought into the new covenant by grace through faith in Christ. That's what happened to you if you're here this morning as a believer. The Spirit of God did what God promised He would do through the prophet Ezekiel. He opened your eyes to see the truth. He opened your ears to hear His call. He enlightened your mind to understand the gospel he opens your heart, made it a heart transplant, right? He took out the stone and he put in the flesh. He opens your heart to embrace the truths of the gospel and to embrace Jesus Christ by faith. The Spirit did that because it's the new covenant age and that's what he does. This massive work of, of sheer sovereign grace is what we call the new birth. Regeneration. In which the Spirit transforms our minds and renews our hearts that we may know and love God truly. This transforming work of the Spirit is begun in conversion, right? It's like seeds being planted, seeds of love and seeds of knowledge and seeds of faith. It is increased and continued in sanctification, which is the ongoing process throughout your life. And it is completed and fulfilled in glorification. So it's not as if you are converted and that day you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. No, that day you begin to love Him truly for the very first time in your life. And over the day after day and week after week and year after year as the Spirit transforms you through the preaching and the teaching and the reading of the Word, you begin to love Him more and know Him more and trust Him more. And then finally there will come a day when Jesus Christ will return and we will see Him either at death or, or when He comes in His second coming and we'll see Him and we'll be made like Him as He is and our faith will be made sight and we will love Him completely. But all of it, from conversion to sanctification to glorification, all of it, it's because of the Spirit of God working as was promised in the New Covenant. Furthermore, everyone included in the New Covenant is the recipient of this powerful, transforming work of the Spirit. What I mean by this, listen very carefully, all those and only those who are born again are included in the New Covenant. All those and only those who have the Spirit of God within them 
and the law of God written on their hearts and their minds are the people of God, which is why he says in verse 11 what he does. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all, who's all? All my covenant people will know me from the least to the greatest. That was not true under the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, not everyone knew the Lord. In fact, throughout much of Israelite history, the number of people who actually knew and loved the Lord their God versus those who did not was very disparate. In fact, I think of Elijah, right? Who after the the competition, like the interaction with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, he fled out into the desert and he complained to the Lord. He thought, I think I'm the only one left who knows you. And he was about right. There was a few thousand. But on on the whole, the vast majority of Israel, the old covenant people of God, they didn't know him and they didn't love him. They were not, to use our New Testament word, saved. Even though they were under the Old Covenant, had the sign of the Old Covenant, which is circumcision. It's not like that under the New Covenant. There is no such thing as an unregenerate, unbelieving Christian. To be a Christian is to be born of the Spirit and believing. Old Covenant Israel, in other words, was comprised of both unbelievers and believers. Those who knew the Lord and those who did not. But not so with new covenant Israel, which is the church. Okay, You've been with me long enough by now. You know that when you look into the Old Testament and you see, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, with the children of Abraham, you know that's you. Because it's the children of faith who are the children of Abraham. Those are united to Christ who are the seed of Abraham, the recipient of the promises. That's you. Old Covenant Israel comprised of believers and unbelievers. New Covenant Israel, which is the church, the bride of Christ, there is no such mixture in it. Only those born of the Spirit, with the law written on their hearts, they're the only ones that receive the forgiveness of sins and are included in the New Covenant. Which is exactly why only believers ought to be baptized in the New Covenant. That's a topic for another time. So the better promise of the new covenant is the promise of the Spirit. The promise of life. The promise of a new heart with new affections, new desires, new obedience, new pursuit of fellowship with God. I will be their God, he says, and they will be my people. Do you have that fellowship by the Spirit? Have you experienced the sin-breaking power of the Spirit? Are you experiencing His ongoing, increasing, progressive, transformational work in your life? Because the sovereign, powerful, effectual working of the Spirit is the essence of the new covenant. It is what separated the Pharisees from the disciples in Jesus' day. And it is what separates mere church members from Christians in our day. Do not be surprised when I tell you that you must be born again. So examine yourself this morning to see whether you be in the faith. Because there is no way around it. 
When the Spirit awakens a sinner to new life, He awakens them to faith and to holiness. What's the effect of the Spirit? I will write my law on their hearts. Ezekiel says, I will put my Spirit within them and cause them to walk in my statutes. Do not misunderstand me. This is not promising that in this life there will be perfection of holiness. This is an ongoing progressive work. It is saying that if you are born again, the seeds of faith and holiness are there and they are growing and they are germinating and they are fruit bearing over time in your life. So ask yourself this question, is the Spirit of God in me? How do I know? Do I understand and believe and embrace the gospel? Do I love and trust Jesus? Do I seek to know and obey His word? Do I pursue fellowship with God? Right? Because the the tendency of, of natural man is to do just what Adam and Eve did after they sinned, which was to run away from God. The tendency of those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God is to run towards God. Which direction is your heart leaning? Because the Spirit does this in the life of anyone who's in the new covenant. Second better promise of the new covenant is one with which we are already well familiar in the book of Hebrews. And we'll cover it at length as we continue in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. And it is the promise of pardon through the Son's sin-atoning death. Verse 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The new covenant is superior to the old in that it is able to fully and finally deal with sin's penalty. All that the old covenant could offer was the repeated cycle of sacrifices, which was evidence, as we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 10, that they weren't working. Because if a sacrifice had been offered that was actually atoning for sin, the sacrifices would have stopped. But as it is, the blood of bulls and goats is is impossible to forgive sin. The old covenant offered no sacrifice, no blood that was valuable enough to atone for man's sin and to purchase man's pardon. But the new covenant has been enacted on better promises. And it is secured by the better blood of a better sacrifice. John the Baptist sees Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, three years later, on the night in which he was betrayed, he's taking the last Passover with his disciples, the first Lord's Supper, and he holds up the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, and it is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. The Son of God poured out his Blood, once for all upon the cross, bearing the sins of His people, absorbing the wrath of God in our place, and the atoning blood of Jesus by the lips of our Lord sealed the new covenant and purchased, once and for all, finally, the pardon for His people. Then in 8.13, the author circles back to the main point. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. When Jesus appeared, 
And when he mediated the new covenant in his blood, he forever abolished the old covenant with everything that belongs to it. When the reality appears, it's time for the shadow to disappear. And that's precisely what happened, both theologically and historically. Theologically, at the death of Jesus Christ, the veil was torn in two, and the temple shook, and the rocks were split. The old covenant at the death of Christ finished. The temple was destroyed, and three days later, Jesus was rebuilt. The true temple of the new covenant. In his death and resurrection, the new covenant is established and the old covenant with its temple and its priesthood and its sacrifices and its statutes was rendered obsolete. And then within a generation, in 40 years, what was already too true theologically was then seen historically in time and in history when the Romans in 70 AD laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, demolished its walls, burned down its temple, and destroyed every last vestige of old covenant worship. And the book of Hebrews is written six years before that event, give or take, to a Jewish Christian congregation that's trying to ride the fence between the two covenants. And he's writing to them with this exquisite argument of the supremacy of the new over the old and everything that belongs to the new over the old. And he's telling them, the time has come, make your choice. Because the old covenant is disappearing and those who belong to the old covenant are going to disappear with it. The time has come to jump in with both feet into Christ and into his new covenant. And I would say the same thing to you this morning. If you are here this morning riding the fence between Christ and anything else, the time has come for you to go all in. Because everything that is not Jesus is fading away and is going to disappear and it will be burned. And only what is new in Christ will remain. Make your choice. But we have a special privilege as New Covenant believers this morning. Lived nearly two millennia after the destruction of Jerusalem. For us, Hebrews 8 is an invitation to celebrate the New Covenant blessings that are ours through faith in Christ, which brings us to the Lord's table. Which along with baptism is one of the sacraments, one of the signs and seals of this New Covenant. In this supper, what we're about to do is we're about to receive tangible proof and commemorate and celebrate the promises that have been made us today in the new covenant. The promise of the Spirit to cause you to walk in the statutes of God, you're going to receive a sign of that. The forgiveness of your iniquities and the the no more remembering of your sins, you're going to receive a sign of that. So I'm inviting everyone here who is a new covenant believer to receive the bread and to receive the cup and to hear this. This is the covenant that I make with you, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon your heart and I will write them upon your mind and I will be your God and you, you're going to be my child. They're not going to Teach everyone, his fellow citizens, saying, know the Lord because you know me. If you're in the new covenant and my spirit resides in you, you know me. 
And so hear my promise to you this morning and receive the sign of that promise. I will be merciful to your iniquities. Wait a second. That promise came before it had actually happened. So we can take from the, per- from the perspective of fulfillment and we can hear it like this. I have been merciful to your iniquities. And I remember your sins no more. This is the celebration of that truth. Truth. 